Good evening, and welcome to the Sleep with Josh podcast. It's the podcast where you sleep with Josh. I am comedian Josh Yang, and every episode I read various pieces of literature in my trademark monotone voice to help you drift off to sleep. Literature like the dictionary, laws, various manuals, the different terms of services that everyone agrees to but never really reads, and other random, boring ideas. Tonight, I am excited to start a series that is as interesting as talking about the existence of life and why people do the things we do. I'm of course talking about philosophy. Some find it boring, especially because it is boring, which is perfect for this podcast. We begin with one of the founders of Western philosophy, the Greek philosopher Plato, who was among the first to tackle epistemology, the study of knowledge, and in 387 BC in Athens, founded the first institution of higher learning in Western civilization, called the Academy. His Platonisms brought forth the theory of forms, and his definition of relationships have led many love-struck men and women to prolonged periods of sexual frustration and emotional insanity. We're just platonic, she said. Your voice is too monotone she said. Our first reading will be from Plato's Republic, a Socratic dialogue written around 375 BC, focusing on justice, the order and character of a just city-state, and the just man. It is a foundational element of Western political theory and philosophy. If you find yourself enjoying this experience, please follow this podcast on your podcast player of choice and tell everyone you know that you sleep with Josh. Now sit back, relax, and close your eyes, because you'll get tired of this podcast. Guaranteed. The Republic by Plato Translated by Benjamin Jowett. 
Introduction and Analysis First Paragraph Only The Republic of Plato is the longest of his works, with the exception of the laws, and is certainly the greatest of them. There are nearer approaches to modern metaphysics in the philobus and in the sophist. The politicus, or statesman, is more ideal. The form and institutions of the state are more clearly drawn out in the laws. As works of art, the Symposium and the Protagoras are of higher excellence, but no other dialogue of Plato has the same largeness of view and the same perfection of style. No other shows an equal knowledge of the world or contains more of those thoughts which are new as well as old, and not of one age only, but of all. Nowhere in Plato is there a deeper irony or a greater wealth of humor or imagery or more dramatic power nor in any other of his writings is the attempt made to interweave life and speculation or to connect politics with philosophy. The Republic is the center around which the other dialogues may be grouped. Here, philosophy reaches the highest point to which ancient thinkers ever attained. Plato among the Greeks, like Bacon among the moderns. Sidebar, this intro was written in the 1800s, if anything, the mid to late 1800s, so Bacon was considered modern at the time. Was the first who conceived a method of knowledge, although neither of them always distinguished the bare outline or form from the substance of truth. And both of them had to be content with an abstraction of science which was not yet realized. He was the greatest metaphysical genius whom the world has seen, and in him, more than in any other ancient thinker, the germs of future knowledge are contained. The sciences of logic and psychology, which have supplied so many instruments of thought to after ages, are based upon the analyses of Socrates and Plato. The principles of definition, the law of contradiction, 
the fallacy of arguing in a circle, the distinction between the essence and accidents of a thing or notion, between means and ends, between causes and conditions. Also the division of the mind into the rational, concupiscent, and irascible elements, or of pleasures and desires into necessary and unnecessary. These and other great forms of thought are all of them to be found in the Republic, and were probably first invented by Plato. The greatest of all logical truths, and the one which writers on philosophy are most apt to lose sight, the difference between words and things has been most strenuously insisted on by him, although he has not always avoided the confusion of them in his own writings. But he does not bind up truth in logical formulae. Logic is still veiled in metaphysics, and the science which he imagines to contemplate all truth and all existence is very unlike the doctrine of the syllogism which Aristotle claims to have discovered. That was from the first paragraph of the introduction and analysis, I'm assuming by Benjamin Jowett. But that's not what we're here for. We're here for Book One of The Republic. I went down yesterday to the Piraeus with Glaucon, the son of Ariston, that I might offer up my prayers to the goddess Bendis, the Thracian Artemis, and also because I wanted to see in what manner they would celebrate the festival which was a new thing. I was delighted with the procession of the inhabitants, but that of the Thracians was equally, if not more, beautiful. When we had finished our prayers and viewed the spectacle, we turned in the direction of the city, and at that instance, Polymarchus the son of Cephalus, chanced to catch sight of us from a distance as we were starting on our way home, and told his servant to run and bid us wait for him. The servant took hold of me by the cloak behind and said, Polymarchus desires you to wait. I turned around and asked him where his master was. There he is, said the youth, coming after you, if you will only wait. Certainly we will, said Glaucon, 
and in a few minutes, Polymarchus appeared, and with him, Adamantus, Glaucon's brother, Nicaratus, the son of Nicias, and several others who had been in the procession. Polymarchus said to me, I perceive, Socrates, that you and your companion are already on your way to the city. You are not far wrong, I said. But do you see, he rejoined, how many we are? Of course. And are you stronger than all these? For if not, you will have to remain where you are. May there not be the alternative, I said, that we may persuade you to let us go. But can you persuade us if we refuse to listen to you, he said. Certainly not, replied Glaucon. Then we are not going to listen. Of that you may be assured. And Amantus added, Has no one told you of the tortrace on horseback in honor of the goddess, which will take place in the evening? With horses, I replied. That is a novelty. Will horsemen carry torches and pass them one to another during the race? Yes, said Polymarchus, and not only so, but a festival will be celebrated at night, which you certainly ought to see. Let us rise soon after supper and see this festival. There will be a gathering of young men, and we will have a good talk. Stay then, and do not be perverse. Glaucon said, I suppose, since you insist, that we must. Very good, I replied. Accordingly, we went with Polymarchus to his house. And there we found his brothers, Lysias and Euthydemus, and with them Thrasymachus, the Chalcedonian, Charmantides, the Paeanian, and Cladophon, the son of Aristonemus. There, too, was Cephalus, the father of Polymarchus, whom I had not seen for a long time, and I thought him very much aged. He was seated on a cushioned chair and had a garland on his head, for he had been sacrificing in the court, and there were some other chairs in the room arranged in a semicircle upon which we sat down by him. He saluted me eagerly, and then he said, 
You don't come to see me, Socrates, as often as you want. If I were still able to go and see you, I would not ask you to come to me. But at my age, I can hardly get to the city, and therefore you should come oftener to the Piraeus. For let me tell you that the more the pleasures of the body fade away, the greater to me is the pleasure and charm of conversation. Do not then deny my request, but make our house your resort and keep company with these young men. We are old friends and you will be quite at home with us. I replied, There is nothing which, for my part, I like better, Cephalus, than conversing with aged men, for I regard them as travelers who have gone a journey which I too may have to go, and of whom I ought to inquire whether the way is smooth and easy or rugged and difficult. And this is a question which I should like to ask of you, who have arrived at that time which the poets call the threshold of old age. Is life harder towards the end, or what report do you give of it? I will tell you, Socrates, he said, what my own feeling is. Men of my age flock together. We are birds of a feather, as the old proverb says. And at our meetings, the tale of my acquaintance commonly is, I cannot eat, I cannot drink. The pleasures of youth and love are fled away. There was a good time once, but now that is gone, and life is no longer life. Some complain of the slights which are put upon them by relations, and they will tell you sadly of how many evils their old age is the cause. But to me, Socrates, these complainers seem to blame that which is not really in fault. For if old age were the cause, I too, being old, and every other old man, would have felt as they do. But this is not my own experience, nor that of others whom I have known. How well I remember the aged poet Sophocles, when in answer to the question, how does love suit with age, Sophocles? Are you still the man you were? Peace, he replied. Most gladly have I escaped the thing of which you speak. I feel as if I had escaped from a mad and furious master. His words have often occurred to my mind since, and they seem as good to me now as at the time when he uttered them. 
for certainly old age has a great sense of calm and freedom. When the passions relax their hold, then, as Sophocles says, we are freed from the grasp not of one mad master only, but of many. The truth is, Socrates, that these regrets and also the complaints about relations are to be attributed to the same cause, which is not old age, but men's characters and tempers. For he who is of a calm and happy nature will hardly feel the pressure of age. But to him who is of an opposite disposition, youth and age are equally a burden. I listened in admiration and wanting to draw him out that he might go on. Yes, Cephalus, I said, but I rather suspect that people in general are not convinced by you when you speak thus. They think that old age sits lightly upon you, not because of your happy disposition, but because you are rich, and wealth is well known to be a great comforter. You are right, he replied. They are not convinced, and there is something in what they say. Not, however, so much as they imagine. I might answer them as Themistocles answered the Seraphian, who was abusing him and saying that he was famous, not for his own merits, but because he was an Athenian. If you had been a native of my country, or I of yours, neither of us would have been famous. And to those who are not rich and are impatient of old age, the same reply may be made. For to the good poor man, old age cannot be a light burden nor can a bad rich man ever have peace with himself. May I ask, Cephalus, whether your fortune was for the most part inherited or acquired by you? Acquired, Socrates, do you want to know how much I acquired? In the art of making money, I have been midway between my father and grandfather. For my grandfather, whose name I bear, doubled and trebled the value of his patrimony, that which he inherited being much what I possess now. But my father, Lysanias, reduced the property below what it is at present, and I shall be satisfied if I leave to these my sons not less, but a little more than I received. That was why I asked you the question, I replied, because I see that you are indifferent about money, 
which is a characteristic rather of those who have inherited their fortunes than of those who have acquired them. The makers of fortunes have a second love of money as a creation of their own, resembling the affection of authors for their own poems or of parents for their children. Besides that natural love of it, for the sake of use and profit, which is common to them and all men, and hence they are very bad company, for they can talk about nothing but the praises of wealth. That is true, he said. Yes, that is very true. But may I ask another question? What do you consider to be the greatest blessing which you have reaped from your wealth? One, he said, of which I could not expect easily to convince others. For let me tell you, Socrates, that when a man thinks himself to be near death, Fears and cares enter into his mind, which he had never had before. The tales of a world below and the punishment which is exacted there of deeds done here were once a laughing matter to him, but now he is tormented with the thought that they may be true, either from the weakness of age or because he is now drawing nearer to that other place. He has a clearer view of these things. Suspicions and alarms crowd thickly upon him, and he begins to reflect and consider what wrongs he has done to others. And when he finds that the sum of his transgressions is great, he will many a time, like a child, start up in his sleep for fear, and he is filled with dark forebodings. But to him who is conscious of no sin, sweet hope, as Pindar charmingly says, is the kind of nurse of his age. Hope, he says, cherishes the soul of him who lives in justice and holiness and is the nurse of his age and the companion of his journey. Hope, which is mightiest to sway the restless soul of man. How admirable are his words, and the great blessings of riches, I do not say to every man, but to a good man, is that he has had no occasion to deceive or to defraud others either intentionally or unintentionally. And when he departs to the world below, he is not in any apprehension about offerings due to the gods or debts which he owes to men. Now to this peace of mind, the possession of wealth greatly contributes. And therefore I say that, setting one thing against another, of the many advantages which wealth has to give, 
to a man of sense, this is, in my opinion, the greatest. Well said, Cephalus, I replied. But as concerning justice, what is it? To speak the truth and to pay your debts, no more than this? And even to this, are there not exceptions? Suppose that a friend, when in his right mind, has deposited arms with me, and he asks for them when he is not in his right mind. Ought I to give them back to him? No one would say that I ought, or that I should be right in doing so, any more than they would say that I ought always to speak the truth to one who is in his condition. You are quite right, he replied. But then, I said, speaking the truth and paying your debts is not a correct definition of justice. It's at this point when other members of the group start chiming in with Polymarchus, and it feels like this would be a good time to end this podcast. Thank you for listening, and congratulations, you've just slept with Josh. But if you're still awake and pondering the definition of justice, please don't forget to also follow this podcast on your podcast player of choice and give us a review. Because, well, I hope this was as good for you as it was for me. Thank you, and good night.